We're going to shift gears completely now from that incredible moment where the Holy Spirit blessed and empowered and called to now turn to God's Word. The text we're looking at today is Luke chapter 7, beginning at verses 37 to 50, as we continue uh, with the sermon series that you have discerned and that you've begun of how to love that neighbor. And this morning, I feel the calling of the Spirit to really address the issue of how when we love that neighbor and how when we address that neighbor, particularly the ones who make us feel uncomfortable, we need to love much. And as we love much in that context, the way to get there is not by our own willpower, it's by remembering the one who first loved us and who has forgiven us. And so as we shift gears, I'm just going to ask again that you bow with me as we pray and commit this time to the Lord. Uh, Gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, ever-present healing, empowering, directing Holy Spirit, we pause before you again this Lord's Day and we give you thanks. We thank you for your presence here. We thank you for how your Spirit is at work. We thank you for the blessings you've already given. We thank you that we've already sensed your touch. We've heard your voice. We know you're here. We thank you for all these incredible blessings. And now, Father, as we stop to open your word, as we stop to again reflect on our Lord and Savior Jesus, as we stop to once again engage with the dictates of your word and your call upon our lives, we simply pause and say, Lord, speak to us in a way that we can hear you. Open our minds that we will know. Open our ears that we can hear. Open our eyes that we may see. But most of all, Father, open our hearts. Open our hearts for your truth, your word, your grace to go very deep to the level of soul, to take root, to bear fruit, to transform and change, to encourage and direct that wherever we go and whatever we do, we will represent you there and we will love much. For we ask this all in your precious name. Amen. Now, it all began in my life with a guest speaker. So, Brian, be very careful about the people you invite to speak. We had a missionary speaking that Sunday morning, a man with an incredible ministry in Russia. Our church family had deep roots in Russia, and they were very interested in what God was doing in the former Soviet Union. So the missionary came, did a phenomenal job. Lots of people got really excited and were blessed and amazed to hear what God was doing in that vast country. And as we came to the end of the service, however, after a time of just incredible blessing and insight and the Spirit directed pouring out of grace and love and truth, the missionary paused and said these words. I have never done this before, but I sense that the Spirit is saying you should send your pastor to Siberia. There was a gasp, there was some laughter, just as you did. I quickly moved up on the platform to take over the rest of the service before he could do any more damage. And I thought that the laughter from that church family was rooted in the very simple reality that a lot of our people had actually had that experience. They'd had family members sent to Siberia that had never returned. And they thought that this was a nervous laughter, a healing laughter. Until the following Sunday, when people began to designate money to the Send Larry to Siberia Fund. (laughs) So much money poured in that Sunday and the Sundays thereafter that the board called a special meeting to look at this, 
to adjust the budget, to then call a special congregational meeting in which person after person said, I think we should send Larry to Siberia. So much money came in that I was able to go, that Erna was able to go, another member from her church was able to go, and we went and we were able to take along gifts and funds and to bless a fledgling Bible school there to start a library, for they had no resources whatsoever. It was an incredible experience of being in Perm and that eastern part of Russia and to engage in a life-changing ministry of seeing what the Spirit of God was doing in a world that had been so dark for so long. And part of the experience of being there included my meeting and greeting the pastor and the elders of the local church that we were working out of, Eastern Russian style. What did that mean? Sunday night after the last service, three Sunday morning services, a meeting with the elders that afternoon, and two evening services packed to the rafters, we walked from the house that we were staying at across the backyard at minus 22 degrees Celsius, wearing shorts, t-shirts, and a towel, where we then walked into a steam room where we disrobed and took absolutely everything off and went into a room of 129 degrees Fahrenheit with 99.9% humidity with so much steam you couldn't see two and a half feet in front of you. Fifteen naked men sitting together in a room, sweating openly and having a conversation with translation going back and forth between Russian and English about what God was doing in Russia. It was their way of warmly welcoming me of demonstrating their complete openness in welcoming me. Now, having spent decades playing all kinds of team sports, and still at that point, I was playing hockey two to three times a week, and multiple times a week, you go into a group shower filled with all kinds of men, no big deal, this does not bother me by any stretch of the imagination. I was fine with this until the pastor arrived. He came into the steam room as naked as the day he was born, walked directly across the room, stood right in front of me, grabbed me by the shoulders, gave me a massive hug, skin to skin, <laughs> and said, the Russian bear welcomes the Canadian bear, and then kissed me full on the mouth in Eastern European style. I've never gone back. <laughs> now, he meant well. He really and truly did. This was the way you greeted each other. This was the way you demonstrated openness. This was the way that you truly demonstrated you had nothing whatsoever to hide. How could you? <laughs> but his garlic breath, his lips on mine, his body pressed against mine, left me feeling decidedly uncomfortable. And the simple reality is this, increasingly in the world in which we live, those of us who are followers of Christ are feeling uncomfortable. The things that we once thought were safely in place in our world are no longer there. And as we're called to love the neighbor, to love the people who are different than us, to love the people who make us feel uncomfortable, I want to walk us through a passage of scripture this morning in Luke chapter 7, which made Jesus and the people around him potentially as uncomfortable as I was in that steam room in Perm. And so if you have your Bibles, I want you to open them to Luke chapter 7 as we work our way through this chapter with a view from 30,000 feet. Big picture stuff. 
Now, Luke chapter 7 is one of my favorite chapters of Scripture as it's loaded with some really incredible stuff. As the chapter opens, Jesus was teaching and preaching and the crowds were astonished by the things that he was saying and doing. The centurion's servant had been healed at a distance, a miracle. It was just astonishing in and of itself. A woman's son was raised from the dead. Many people were healed of sickness. Many demons and evil spirits were cast out. John the Baptist had some pressing questions about what was going on and what it all meant. And Jesus had some affirmations about John and his ministry. And his verse 28 makes unbelievably clear. Jesus said, no one born of a woman was greater than John. Wow. That includes Moses. That includes Elijah. That includes David. That includes Daniel. No one was greater than John, said Jesus. Wow. Clearly, Jesus is at the stage of his ministry where he is a celebrity rabbi. People are flocking to hear him, to see him, to experience him. They want to know what's going on. They want to see the power of the Spirit at work. They want to hear God's word delivered in a way that people are excited about. They're absolutely overwhelmed. And therefore, one of the Pharisees who had been following Jesus' ministry invited Jesus to his home for a meal in a small gathering. Just like we do when we extend hospitality for a meal because we want to get to know someone better. Simon did that for Jesus. And that's where we pick up the story in Luke chapter 7. Now the first century Jewish practice of hospitality was very, very specific. Since everyone wore sandals and since the roads were very dusty and dirty, your feet were washed before every meal. Why? Because unlike our way of doing a meal where you sit at the table and your feet are safely tucked underneath the table, in that first century culture, you reclined at the meal. So your feet are obvious to everyone. And when you come to the meal, this is simple hygiene, required and expected by everyone. Depending on who you were when you entered the home, your host would wash your feet as a sign of honor, or a servant may be assigned the task or as an absolute minimum, a bowl of water and a towel would be offered and you would do it yourself as a common courtesy. Normally, the homeowner would also greet you warmly in the Middle Eastern style with a kiss the moment you come through the doorway. Today, we would shake hands, offer a warm hug or in our COVID world, we'd wave in that direction or elbow bump. In the first century, it would be a kiss on the cheek or even on the lips, just like my Russian pastor did to me. In addition, you might offer some olive oil that people would put on their heads to refresh and to cleanse before you come to the meal. Simon the Pharisee, however, did none of these things for Jesus when he invited him to his meal in his home. He seemingly completely ignored Jesus and the common courtesy of the day. And in doing so, he demonstrated that at best his hospitality to Jesus was out of curiosity, reluctantly given, as an indication perhaps that he considered himself superior to Jesus in every way. His actions made one thing very clear. He believed that Jesus was not worthy of such an honor and a courtesy. Jesus ignored all of these relational slights, joined the gathering, reclining together with the others at the meal at Simon's house. Then a woman entered the area who, as the Bible tells us, had lived a sinful life. 
That's probably Bible talk for a prostitute. And she suddenly stood behind Jesus at his feet. We can safely assume she's never been in this house before. In fact, when these kinds of meals took place, they were often held in an open courtyard or in a very large room. And crowds would come and stand around the fringes and they would hang out and watch and hear the conversation. They wouldn't partake of the meal, but they would just observe. Gatherings like this one were often held in those open areas. And this woman had probably been standing as part of the crowd, simply observing as one of the onlookers, when suddenly she's standing behind Jesus at his feet, clearly overwhelmed and weeping with gratitude and love. We don't know the background of the story. We don't know whether it happened at that moment or whether it happened sometime earlier that day. But suddenly she is at her feet because in Jesus she had found a man who treated her like no other man ever had. Her tears fell on his feet. And using her hair as a towel, she washed his feet. That act of letting down her hair to use for a towel is an act so intimate in first century Jewish culture that you would have heard a gasp from every single person who saw it unfolding. This was unbelievably intimate, scandalous by the stories of the day. It was unbelievably uncomfortable for everyone involved to even see the woman do this, let alone to be Jesus on the receiving end of it. Her actions went beyond all boundaries of what was appropriate. And then she went even further. She kissed his feet and anointed them with perfume. This was a costly act of sacrifice honoring Jesus. And it was coming from a place of incredible love. With extravagant love and tears, she did for Jesus what Simon the Pharisee, the homeowner, never did. That interaction between this known sinner and Jesus, however, somehow seemingly sealed the deal for Simon the Pharisee. He knew what she was. She was a sinner. Bible talk for someone who's made a real mess of their lives. He knew that no real man of God would ever let a woman like this get that close to him, let alone touch him in such an openly inappropriate and scandalous way. He concluded that Jesus couldn't possibly be a prophet or a man of God. As he saw it, it was impossible to reconcile these two things. You couldn't be godly and allow sinners like this woman to touch you in such an inappropriate way. And Simon simply concluded that Jesus should have known better. And since he didn't know better, he clearly wasn't a prophet. He clearly wasn't worth listening to. The thing is that Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, does indeed know better. He not only knew what was appropriate and inappropriate, but he also knew what was going on in both the heart of the woman at his feet and the Pharisee who was judging him across the room. To prove his point, he asked Simon a question. Now take note. Simon never spoke his thoughts aloud. He simply said to himself, he thought to himself, this was internal dialogue going on inside of him that Luke has recorded for us. Yet the parable and the question that Jesus asked demonstrated that he knew what Simon was thinking. The question he asks is this, 
In verses 41 and 42, I ask you to read these words with me in unison and let the truth of them settle into your mind and your heart. Let's read God's word together. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Oh, man. I love it when Jesus gets personal, don't you? You ever been in a place where you're suddenly hearing Brian preaching or Jennifer preaching and you know it's no longer Brian or Jennifer, it's Jesus who's tapping you on your soul? Don't you just jump up and down for joy at that point in time? Don't you just get really excited and go, yeah, I get to repent again? When you hear the voice of Jesus and you know it's him tapping you on your soul. My friends, it is time to stop and say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Jesus went right to the heart of the issue, which is that Simon understood nothing about the transforming power of forgiveness. Nothing. A denarii was a day's wage. And the people in this parable were forgiven debts of many days' wages, but one was forgiven a debt that was ten times greater. So Jesus' question of who will love more was a simple but powerful reminder of what really mattered. Those who are forgiven much find it easy to love much. Would you say that with me, please? Those who are forgiven much find it easy to love much. But Simon missed it. His answer to Jesus' question in verse 43 indicates complete indifference. Verse 43 begins with, I suppose. He truly missed the point. But even more, wasn't even remotely interested in the truth that Jesus was trying to communicate. He seemed to be more interested in what he believed was right to hear than what Jesus was saying about the power of forgiveness. The notorious sinner, on the other hand, without saying a word, demonstrated by her actions that she understood the point. She did out of love what Simon wouldn't do out of common courtesy. She cleansed Jesus' feet with her tears, kissed his feet in greeting, anointed him with perfume, Without speaking a single word, her actions illustrated her gratitude, love, and faith. She had been forgiven much, so she loved much. The difference between Simon and the woman was more than their knowledge of the scriptures, social standings, or struggles with sin. The greatest difference between them was their understanding of faith. For Simon, faith was all about being pure and getting it right. For the woman, faith was all about the transforming power of forgiveness expressed in her gratitude and love to Jesus. Jesus made that abundantly clear in his summary statement in verse 47. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven for she loved much.
Jesus then turned to the woman and declared publicly what was clearly true privately. Your sins are forgiven, he said. Without her saying one word, with only her tears and acts of love to base it on, Jesus declared her forgiven. And that, of course, raised even more questions from the guests because only God can forgive. So who does Jesus think he is? Jesus knows who he is. He's the one who sees and responds to real faith in her life, in your life, in my life. He's the one who saw and responded to Jennifer's faith. He's the one who saw and responded to Peter's faith. He's the one who sees and responds to anyone who comes in faith to him. The fruit of this woman's faith is simple and clear. Her action of sacrificial, bold love reveals her faith in Jesus. That's why she is there at his feet weeping. In other words, her real faith placed in Jesus allowed her to experience the transforming power of forgiveness. And just so we know that this is not a one-off story, in the very next chapter, indeed, in the first three verses that follow this passage, in chapter 8, verses 1 to 3, we find three more women who have been set free of evil spirits and diseases, who have been transformed by Jesus Christ, who has experienced his forgiveness and his grace that set them free. Jesus knows who he is. He is the one who responds to real faith and offers new beginnings and the transforming power of forgiveness. That is who Jesus is. There are many of us here who have experienced this gift of grace. I pray we never forget it. And we never forget that it was Jesus who drew, him to, drew us to him. That we never forget that he was the one who forgave us and set us free. I pray that we never ever forget that because the moment we do what I have observed continually over 40 years of pastoral ministry is this. The moment churches forget that, we focus on getting it right. Let's get our doctrine right. Let's get our theology right. Let's get our stage presence right. Let's get the music right. Let's get the staff right. Let's get the governance structure right. Let's get it right so we can declare to the world our rightness. And yet I've noticed with unbelievable consistency that when the church is filled with people who have never, ever forgotten that they have been forgiven much, they're not concerned with getting it right. They're concerned with the people who have not yet experienced the forgiveness and love of Jesus Christ. Do I hear an amen to that, by the way? Don't rush over that. For that is one of the greatest temptations that faces the church in Jesus Christ right now. In this era of polarity, when so many of us want to run to try to get something right that we can control when so much else is out of control, that very tendency is one that moves us away from where Jesus wants us to be. Which is plainly and simply following him, knowing that he is the one who alone can change and transform lives. Now, there are many truths in this passage that will encourage us in our faith, and I wish I had the time to explore all of them with you because we could look at these words and we could learn a lot about all kinds of things. We could stop and think about what it really means to make people feel welcome. And a piece of advice, I wouldn't include a steam room. 
One of the greatest dangers that faces us as a church is we think we're making people feel welcome when in actuality we're turning them away. And what Jesus demonstrates to us here in the most powerful way is that we are called to make all people welcome in the presence of God. And we could stop and we could talk about that for a long time. Or we could look at this entire chapter and deepen our understanding of who Jesus really is because this chapter is loaded with unbelievable insights into Jesus, our Lord and Savior, the Son of God, that encourage us and inspire us as we follow Him to become more and more like Him. Or we could talk about our faith and how it really is seen by our choices, by the decisions we make, by how we carry ourselves and portray ourselves Simon's faith is on display in all of his actions. The woman's faith is on display in all of her actions. Let me ask you plainly and simply, who do you want to be like? Do you want to have it all together and sit back and judge? Or do you want to be the person who with open heart, open hands, open lives, is willing to say, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And let's see what Jesus is going to do in your life. Which is it? But the one truth that I feel most strongly drawn to this morning is the last one. It's the one I've been emphasizing all the way through. When we are forgiven much, we love much. And I simply want to say two things about this. Jennifer, I know that you have experienced this truth. You've experienced what it is to be forgiven by Jesus. You believe it to the core of your being. It comes out of you in waves. I see it. I experience it. And I simply remind you that on this day of ordination, never forget that this is why you and I do what we do. It's because Jesus has forgiven us much. Therefore, we are called and able to love much. Secondly, my friends, when we are forgiven much, we know that everyone needs to experience the transforming power of forgiveness. That neighbor that we're called to love and engage with might be a self-righteous hypocrite like Simon was, it might be someone who's known for, quote-unquote, what the Bible calls a sinful life. It might be someone who makes us feel really uncomfortable standing in a steam room, chest to chest. Jesus calls us to all of them. Those who already know him and those who do not. And how we respond to the call of Jesus at that point in time is plainly and simply based on one simple truth. How well do you know Jesus? When you know him well, you know that you have been forgiven much. I leave you with this. I want you to see these things the way that Jesus sees them. As you talk about what it means to love that neighbor, as you engage some of the hard challenges of this generation, I want you to trust him the way that this woman did. 
And it's my prayer that for all of us, not only as White Rock Baptists, for for all followers of Christ, of all associations and denominations, that this is where I stand to the day that I die, and I invite you to join me in the process. I have been forgiven much. Therefore, I will love much. And may we all go and do likewise. Amen. Just to, sorry, I'm going to ask Larry to stay on stage. Uh, I'm going to go off script. You know, we're a, we're a good Baptist church. We're not all Baptists in our good Baptist church, and I know that, and, and we love everyone. Um, but often, when we are done a sermon, even one as powerful as that, and one where undoubtedly the Holy Spirit has worked, uh, we have our schedule. We have our order of service. And we close with a hymn. And then we have a benediction with some humorous comments and off we go and have coffee when the Holy Spirit is lingering and the Holy Spirit is doing business. Uh, And so this morning, I feel compelled to do something very different. And Larry, I'm going to ask you, uh, I'm going to ask each of us to just bow our heads and to just enter into a posture of prayer. I cannot for even a moment believe that we would listen to a message like that from God and not have some of us moved to acknowledge that all too often we are the Pharisee. We like to think we're the woman, but in reality we are the Pharisee. And we judge and we condemn. And so I'm going to simply invite You don't have to. You just stay with your head bowed in that attitude of prayer. But I know I want to respond to the Holy Spirit. And I want to stand before God in repentance. And to say, God, forgive me that all too often I have judged. I have played right Christian, wrong Christian. When you call me to love. And if I'm the only one, so be it. But if perhaps God, by his spirit, has moved and stirred within your heart, and you would like Larry to offer a prayer on our behalf and on your behalf, as you repent, and as you say, God, would you help me by your spirit? Remind me how much you've forgiven me so that I might love. I'm going to ask you to just prayerfully and quietly stand where you are. And Larry, for those of us who are standing, would you offer a prayer on our behalf? Not because you are any better than us, correct? but because you are our brother in Christ. Would you pray for us? Gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, ever-present, empowering, cleansing, convicting Holy Spirit. We pause before you again this Lord's Day and we give you thanks. We know that you're here. We know that you're present. We know that you have spoken. And we know that you've touched our lives. We confess to you, Father, that we have erred. 
and in spite of our best intentions, and sometimes with believing what was best intention, we have slipped into judging. We have failed to remember that we have been forgiven much. We have not stepped forward to say, Lord, use me to love great light. And so we simply pause before you now and we pray that you will cleanse us with your Holy Spirit. As we confess our sin to you, our failure to you, we know that you've already forgiven us. Now, Father, heal us. Awaken within us the realization of how much you have forgiven us. And enable us, we pray, to know how much you love us and to let that love flow through us to all people without any holding back of anything. Mold us and shape us, use us and cleanse us and inspire us so fully that wherever we go, we know that Jesus is with us. And because of that, there is hope in this world that you have not given up on anyone, least of all us. We ask this all in your precious name. And may your kingdom come and your will be done in and through our lives, we pray. Amen.